Sick Boy Wolfgang Productions presents The Offering with Jerry Horror. A deep dive into the history of film and its filmmakers. Mostly horror, always genre. Eighties and nineties horror fans, it is time to rejoice. You've seen his work, you're a fan of his art, and now you can wear artist Mark Schoenbach's sadist art designs. If you're a fan of cult classic horror, you know his work, you've seen it everywhere, from the Halloween franchise to Pool Party Massacre, whether it's at Slashback Video or Mac and Me, you will recognize his distinct style instantly. Now check out his latest stock, including R.L. Stein and Christopher Pike-inspired merchandise. Visit sadistartdesigns.com and put some respect on your swag. Welcome to The Offering with Jerry Hara, the show where we can have a quiet and frank discussion as adults about the things that matter to me, or at least that I think matter to me. Please take a moment to subscribe to our show wherever you get fine podcasts. And hey, stay up to date on future episodes. This week on The Offering, we are talking all about one of the scariest films from 2008, the home invasion modern classic, The Strangers. gentlemen welcome to the offering my name is jerry hara thank you once again for your commitment to quality podcasting uh of a certain quality i don't know if it's high quality but there is substance you you've got carbohydrates with your vegetables and your protein it's all working it's working on every level you got fiber you got good fats you got protein it's working it's healthy it's nutritious it's the offering. So, a lot of my friends are having personal crisis. I'm at that age where I'm in my 40s, and it's crazy. My friends, people are getting divorced. People are having midlife crises. Some people, they want to have kids. Some people just want to fall in love. But I think there's a commonality, and that's they're at a different place in their life. They're at a milestone in their life. Some people say it's every seven years. You go through seven-year cycles, relationships, jobs, where your passion is leading, what you're not passionate about anymore. Sometimes relationships change. We have friends. We have friends that they'll be our friends forever, but they might move to Iceland and we don't see them. I guess maybe you need to make some choices in your life. Maybe you need to go to Iceland to go visit them because that would be good and it would be a profound change that would make your life better. Well, maybe because of your bad relationship, you've developed anxiety. You don't want to get on a plane. What are we going to do, a 10-hour flight to Iceland? Come on, that's a, that's a lot. What I'm saying is we're all at different points in our lives and sometimes it's troubling to watch some of the people that you've uh, become closest to go through tough times. We don't want to see other people suffer. We don't. We don't. It, 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 it irons us. But what I will say is sometimes we move into different parts of our life where relationships can't continue. 
and it sucks. Sometimes, you know, if you're lucky, it's a mutual thing. It's a mutual understanding that maybe this friendship can't go any further. Maybe this marriage can't go any further. After going to a wedding early on, the early frames of The Strangers, Liv Tyler and Scott Speedman realize that their relationship isn't working and it is pretty much broken. They're going to figure out separately after this wedding, after they get some sleep, where they're going to be going in life. And that kind of takes us to the whole genesis of this story. Well, there's a little more to it than that. It's crazy. You get to a certain age, you move on to different things. And I think that as far as horror films, this is an ingenious place to start. It's not a bunch of teenagers. It's not a bunch of girls at a slumber party. It's a couple who are at the end of their wits and at the end of their relationship and ready to move on to new and exciting things, if they can survive the night. This week, for your approval, The Strangers. Pastoral is a noun. It is a work of literature portraying an idealized version of country life. It seems as we've gotten in, we're in 2021 right now. How you doing out there? It's me, it's Jerry Har. As we've gotten into this weird new time, people, they want homesteads. This idea of this country lifestyle to a lesser degree, the Norman Rockwell version of America. It's what we all want. We all want that. We want to live in a nice town. You know, you, you get to go into the city, you have fun, but you live in a small, idyllic suburb where you know everybody. Some people, you're further out. Maybe you're up in the mountains, but you've got your own chickens. You've got your own garden. It's quiet. It's no traffic. You hear a pin drop at night. Maybe if you're lucky, you hear the old locomotive go by. Maybe not. I don't know. It's your fantasy. We all want this lifestyle to a degree, even if we don't want it all the time. Even if you're a city mouse and you don't, you there's a part of you that would like to spend two months, maybe a week, maybe two weeks out in the country. I think we could all use it. Everybody likes fresh air, slower, simpler life. Unfortunately, it doesn't really exist. A lot of the imagery in this film we speak about this pastoral quality. The home that is invaded by our strangers in this film has a lot of wood paneling. It's got soft, you know, very soft, old lighting, low wattage bulbs. This is a real house that was in South Carolina. But the actual structure was built on a soundstage in South Carolina. The house, as you will, was recreated and restructured to shoot a film in. It's very important that we had crocheted items from Grandma in this house. They were setting a tone. Uh, they were setting a mood. What is it like if your grandparents had a cabin or a homestead? What would this place look like? What would it look like in 2008? How would it be decorated? Would it just be trapped in time? You know? Almost like some kind of weird library, some strange monument 
to the interior decorating of the 1970s and late 60s. I think sometimes what's most important, especially in invoking mood in film and horror, is time and place. This film puts you in a time and place where you're nostalgic for an earlier time, a simpler time that your grandparents, your great-grandparents might have experienced. You know, things were just, life was a little bit slower and the strawberries were a little bit sweeter. That, my friend, it's a hope and a prayer. What? I just want to tell you something. What do you want to tell me? You are my girl. I love you, Jimmy. What is that? As I, I mentioned before, did I tell you? Glenn Howerton's in this movie. It's kind of crazy. He's uh, from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. I like his show, AP Bio. He's good. He's a good dude. Uh, the real secret, though, with this movie is the film setting is within a 1970s era home. It is representational of American tradition of violence that is random without any coherent explanation. We are introducing violence into this pastoral setting. That is the basis for the entire plot. That is most of the story. This film runs at 83 minutes. 85 minutes for the director's cut has some other gruesome stuff in it. If you have the option, watch the director's cut. This is a very short film. It gets right to the point. Our protagonists are terrorized. But before we get into that, we start out, we have Liv Tyler. We have Scott Speedman, who supposedly is an actor, but started as a model. And even though he acted in films, I don't think he ever graduated from model to actor. He's kind of somewhere, he's a actor. I don't know. You know, like they call rappers who are actors, raptors. He's a actor. he's a model, a, a mode, a mo actor. I don't know. Whatever. So it's him and Liv Tyler. They're at a wedding and their relationship's coming to an end. And it's, it's 
Like, here's the thing, man. If you've ever been in a serious relationship where you love somebody and it's coming to an end, it's terrible. Heartbreak is always terrible. Everybody experiences it differently, but it's not fun. Unless you're a complete sociopath. Then otherwise you don't care. You'll just move on to your next piece of prey. You people disgust me. Um, It's not a comfortable place to start a horror movie. We are not starting this film in the idyllic sprawl of Haddonfield. This is not Woodsboro. This is, it's just not. This is more grounded in reality. Even if you think back to the old horror films, whether it was Universal, whether it was the Hammer films, Big Castle, Nighttime Bats, Lightning. This is not that. This is a quiet, isolated home in the middle of nowhere. Their relationship has ended. We are to believe that this is Scott Speedman. This this is like his grandparents' house, and they're staying there. They uh, they went to Glen Howerton. Uh, they went to his wedding, and uh, yeah, the whole relationship is coming to an end. And you're there with a bunch of people who are happy and getting married, and. In your heart, you know that this is over and you and your partner are just going to go separate ways after this night is over. In fact, there is a bit of cringe to this film in the simple fact that this relationship is over. These people might not see each other again, but they're going to stay in the same house. And you can kind of get these vibes that like live, like they're not sleeping in the same bed or together. Like they're going to sleep separately. She's going to take a bath. We're going to call it a wrap. And it's going to be an uncomfortable part where if you're Scott Speedman, you're up and you might, you might be a little, you might be getting a little bit banged up, but if not that you are most definitely lying on your back and perhaps crying yourself to sleep. Because let me tell you something. I don't care who you are. You lose out on Liv Tyler. I'm going to be crying about that. I'm going to be upset. She's, she's a hot mama. And uh, it would hurt me. It would deeply, deeply affect me to know that Liv Tyler and I will not be continuing our intimate and passionate relationship. That's messed up. I'm hurt. I don't know what to do. Going to go listen to a Drake record. I'm in my feelings by Liv Tyler. Yeah, this is a weird one. And this movie is an inspiration for anybody who wants to make movies. We always talk about that because I think even if you are the most casual fan of films, you always think in your head, what can I do to make that picture better? What can I do to make that movie? You know what they should have done? Everybody, just like they say in football, there's armchair quarterbacks. Everybody is an armchair director. They should have known what to do with it. I always think about this too when people are going through bad things. Like George Lucas and Steven Spielberg were both getting divorced when they did Temple of Doom. And imagine that, you know, like (laughs) you got George Lucas and he's like, you know what? Fuck all these bitches, Steven. Fuck them all. And Steven's like, yeah, that's a good idea. I can't really do a Steven Spielberg impression, but Steven would be like, yeah, yeah. You know what, George? That, yeah, you know, I'm not going to get I'm not going to fall in love with the lead of this Indiana Jones film, even though I'm going through a terrible divorce and the mother of my children is over in California with, you know, whatever. And, and George, let's put it this way after his first wife, let, oh, come on. And you know, he had his, he probably had his, his, whatever his pleasantries, but George, George isn't like rebounding this and like, you know what, maybe we could go out to a club, you know, some new wave stuff, go see the Eurythmics. You know, it'll be fun. Steven, I need a night out. 
that doesn't happen. Both of them going through a divorce. People say that's why Temple of Doom was so dark because both of them were just like, fuck bitches, get money. And that was not where we're at. Uh, this film is crazy because Brian Bertino, the writer and director, we're going to get there to the director part. He wrote this screenplay. He's like, what can I do with it? He enters it into a contest. Yes, this was a screenplay contest. Basically, then somebody at Universal got wind. Hey, this is a really good screenplay. This is the type of film that we can make for under $12 million and it'll work. He sells it. Just like, look, this guy hasn't had a lot going on, Brian Bertino. He goes from entering a contest to getting this film optioned and picked up by Universal. We always talk about like those blacklist movies. There, I don't even know what we would call it. We might have to invent something for this, but there is always a, a segment of blacklist horror films, even genre, science fiction, you know, high concept stuff that is like the secret blacklist. Like, Everybody knows sometimes when there's like a banger of a genre movie, um, that was this script that, you know, and if we go back, he basically wrote the script in 2003 and then it, it went into the contest and then won by like 2005. So this isn't like an overnight thing. Don't be, you know, I'm trying to give you a little bit of, of time here. This wasn't like, oh, he entered the contest. He won. And then. They voted him mayor of McCheesetown. It, it wasn't like that. It wasn't. It was only the third screenplay he had ever written. Brian Bertino went on record saying this was the first screenplay that he wrote the right way. Obviously because it got sold to Universal. Universal didn't know what to do with it. They loved the screenplay. They think there's a marketable idea behind The Strangers. That this film can work. They get Mark Romanek who had done One Hour Photo, which is a brilliant movie that people sleep on with Robin Williams, the late, great Robin Williams, fantastic film if you have not seen. One Hour Photo, the offering says it is required reading, folks. Uh, you might not like seeing this is your Mrs. Doubtfire going into dark places that you might not feel comfortable with, but you got to see it. It's good. Romanek ends up, and he's a guy, he didn't make a lot of films. It's like 2002 is One Hour Photo, and pretty much like his opus is Never Let Me Go. He spends the time from 2006, 2005, just for the next four years prepping Never Let Me Go. That's That was his choice. This one, this is the most shocking, besides the Glenn Howerton, which is not really it. I just like saying his name. I think it's funny that, to me, it's funny whenever you have someone who's a very comedic actor, he's doing AP bio, and it's just, here he is in this like, dark horror film that's just yeah after dropping out mark romanek uh they decided because again universal at this time they've, they've got their in-house directors they like working with one of those directors was the um the amazing justin lynn uh who had done better luck tomorrow and he was basically being optioned and groomed by the studio to be the next guy ultimately with the success of the fast and the furious franchise he's done pretty good for himself but they said, look, Mark Romanek doesn't want to do this, but we think it's a good genre film. We think it's a good pick for you, Mr. Lin. This is where you should be going. And he says, you know what? I heard that John Singleton's not going to do the sequel to Fast and the Furious, and you want to do it in Tokyo. I, I think that would be a great fit for me. 
So again, veering timelines, that's where he goes. Okay, studio's fed up. The film, at a certain point in the late, kind of like 2005 on, Universal developed this arm of their company that was also kind of, they had a lot of films from England. Um, they, they put out quite a few pictures under this, a lot of action stuff. Um, originally, the Strangers trailer was on the film Doomsday with Rona Mitra, if you know that film. I like that movie. I like, we might, that's a future episode. We might do Doomsday. Very interesting story with that. Rogue Pictures is putting out a lot of this genre content. That's where it's being siphoned down, just like Miramax had Dimension. We all know this stuff. They decide, well, you know what? This guy Bertino has shot like other stuff, like he's done short films. This is a movie we want to make. Now, originally the budget was like 15 million or something like that. And like the secret is, is once, <laughs> once it goes down from Mark Romanek, it's like, all right, we'll give Justin Lin $13 million. <laughs> the budget keeps going down. Like every time they go to a different level of like, and it's not to say that Justin Lin is untalented, but it was like, it started with a higher profile guy, went to the lower profile guy, and then it goes to Bertino, which is like, well, how much damage can he do if, if they don't spend that much money on this movie? You know, um, right from the beginning, Bertino knew exactly what he wanted. He knew that the role of Kristen was going to be played by Tyler. Liv Tyler hadn't worked for many years up until this point. Like after the birth of her son, she was just not working. It was kind of one of these deals where she got laid over on a flight from Japan to Los Angeles and somebody gave her the script. And she was like, this is really creepy. It's like really unsettling. And she's she it's one location it's a centralized location. There's no stunts. This isn't working with Michael Bay because that was a little bit of part of it. A little bit of hot goss there that she worked with Michael Bay. Was, I don't know about movies. I don't like this after Armageddon, but I'm not trying to start any rumors. It's just that's what I've heard. So she decides to do this film. She said, often in movies, it's all spelled out for you. And the dialogue is very explanatory. Brian doesn't, doesn't write like that. He writes how normal people communicate with questions left lingering in the air. It would be interesting to act with someone like that. Canadian model and actor Scott Speedman. He was uh, cast as James. He was also impressed by the script. He thought this was something different. He was in Underworld, Kate Beckinsale. And he, you know what? His, it's not that he, okay. He's got great abs. It's, his career trajectory was never what they thought it would be. They thought he was going to be one of these guys who was a model and transitioned into a leading man. He ends up doing a lot of genre fare. I will say this, if I have to pick one of the best things that Speedman did during this era, it was The Strangers. This was, this was one of those things. I think the reason Scott Speedman works is because he's so handsome and he is so like, picturesque type of guy like you think about what guy would i want to take me somewhere and seduce me it'd be like it would look like scott speedman you know like that's what you're hoping that's that's you know it's good stuff good stuff but unfortunately they, they don't always look like that oh he was in felicity producer pete letting me know he was in Fel jesus christ i don't know i scott speedman man so 
I think that's one of the reasons this movie works is because this dude is so like suave and good looking and his relationship is in the shitter. So even Scott Speedman, who's got the looks and the charm and the abs, Liv Tyler, she's going her separate ways. It's not enough. Scott Speedman, what kind of world are we living in? Scott Speedman's not enough. This movie scared Speedman. He said that after he read it, couldn't sleep. Now, not a lot of people in this movie. The titular Strangers. Bertino chose Australian fashion model Gemma Ward. If you haven't seen her, she plays Dollface in this film. Um, she's beautiful. I mean, it's it's crazy because you look at Gemma Ward and you're like, oh my God. And Bertino knew because he was at a fashion show. Because, you know, that's what you do. He was at a fashion show and he saw her walk and he was like, oh my God, she'd be terrifying. And I think that's kind of cool that he knew just like, because this is... This is a role. The strangers don't speak. Well, they do speak, but very limited. Most of the time, 95% of the time, the strangers are quiet. So a lot has to be done with actual physicality, acting, presence, sometimes models, especially if they understand the pantomime, it'll work. It was kind of one of these deals where he cast these offbeat actors as the strangers he wanted something different. He wanted something where the, they were going to act without any kind of sound and really through their body language. It's incredible, I think, because when you have a writer-director, they have a very clear vision of what they're trying to execute. We talked about this on previous episodes. Uh, you know, Killing Mrs. Tingle or Teaching Mrs. Tingle, not the best example of Kevin Williamson's talents, but when you have a writer-director... They're able to convey things that maybe a director alone can't because they intrinsically understand the story because it's, it's you know, like we talk about sometimes making a movie is like birthing a child. They've been there since conception. And that, that, that is the first, the conception of any film is screenwriting. That's where it starts. That's the genesis of the idea. So to have this guy basically do this the way he wanted to do his way, it's, it's fantastic. He basically took, uh, as far as the man who was in the mask, who's now played by friend of the podcast, Damien Maffei. He's in The Strangers, the sequel. He's really good, too. Good dude. Hey, Damien, how are you? Uh, he's shooting that Peeping Tom film right now uh, with Ryan James. Shout out to those guys. We'll be right back with more of The Offering with Jerry Horror. You're listening to The Offering with Jerry Hara. Got a question or a story you want to share with me? It might be featured in a future episode. Email me at jerryhara at gmail.com or hit me up on Twitter at jerryhara. I'm also on Instagram. You can find me there at jerryhara. Rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts and you might find your review in an upcoming episode. And if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to The Offering. Now back to the show. Okay. Moving through, in the first film, Kip Weeks was chosen as the man in the mask. Television actress Laura Margolis, she was the pinup girl in the film, One of the Strangers. In retrospect, Bertino said that he would rather choose the three actors based on their abilities that they can convey as the characters, in spite of the fact that all three of these actors' faces 
would not be seen on screen. So again, they had to effectively communicate what he was trying to sell. I think that it worked. And it's crazy because uh, Rogue Pictures was very hesitant to have him direct this film because he was unproven. So as we started, $15 million with Mark Romanek, $12 million, 13, 12, 13, 12, yeah, 12 million dollars with Justin Lin. And now our budget has been slashed once again, ladies and gentlemen, $9 million we're, we're bringing this movie in for. They started shooting October 10th, 2006. They finished roughly in 2007. It was shot 10 miles outside of Florence, South Carolina. Uh, it was a 2,000 square foot uh, space where the house interior was constructed. Um, the film takes place in 2005, but the house itself was deliberately constructed with an architecture reminiscent of the 1970s. Bertino based the house on the types of homes where he had grown up in Texas. The property was on the outskirts of uh, in South Carolina, in Timminsville. Despite weather complications, even including one hurricane, the film was shot in chronological order which, if you know, is not done uh, very often. So they shot this front to back as it was meant to be done. And, and sometimes I think that's kind of cool because you're developing the film. There's kind of a, a rhythmic pace again to knowing how to orchestrate when you get to that climax, the third act, the second act, because you already have, you've already got footage. You know what you've shot, so you know where it has to go. It's one of the, if you're able to shoot, in sequence from front to from beginning to end it does make it a lot easier in some ways and again the reason that you're able to do this is because this is one central house there's not we go from the wedding straight back to scott speedman the, the parents house so it's two locations that's it that's all we see we see the driveway we see out into the street this film is incredibly interesting Okay, like I have to get into this because this is really the meat of this whole story. Bertino has said that the Sharon Tate murders, the Manson murders, that was basically what the whole crux was for this film. Well, a lot of people, and, and this is crazy, because this is not like people who are just bloggers. This is actual like scholars people who are actual work in universities in film, they say that this film is not based on the family. It might've been an inspiration to Sharon Tate murder, the Manson family murders that you saw in once upon a time in Hollywood that went the way we hoped they would go. The Ketty cabin murders that occurred in Ketty, California in 1981. These were not very known. This is not a very known case. The reason the Ketty Cabin murders are so absolutely disturbing is because American tradition of violence that is random and without coherent explanation. These murders happened in a way that no one saw coming. This is kind of out in the middle of nowhere. There's lakes to fish in. It's a beautiful place. If, if you see, look up Ketty, California. That's K-E-D-D-I-E like K plus Eddie, K Eddie, you got to see this place. It's beautiful. It's exactly where you want to live. It's out in the middle of nowhere. 
I want to make sure. And again, I don't do the true crime thing, but if we're going to do it, we have to be respectful of what's happened. This woman, Sue, she had gotten divorced. I want to say in the late seventies, she lived in Connecticut with her husband. She takes the kids. They start a new life. There's three of her oldest kids. And then there's another, uh, the younger child with his two of his friends. Ultimately, Sue, the mother goes missing in the morning in 1981, which actually happened in October as well. They find the son tied up with the other son, the older kids and the friend who is over young lady, there's three of them. They were tied up with electrical tape and electrical cords. They had been stabbed, bludgeoned, beaten to death in various ways and tortured probably over the course of five hours. The other three children that were under the age of 10 in the house, uh, they woke up later and supposedly didn't hear any of it, didn't know any of it. Those boys were all under the age of 10 years old. For a long time, they didn't find Sue's body, the mother. They had a bunch of false starts. First thing, first conclusion they come to is it's a divorce. It's a messy divorce. They look to the husband. Husband, ex-husband's got a total, wasn't him. You know, like we, we always go to that. Was it the husband? Wasn't. They still don't know. It's an unsolved murder. Things have come up over the years. I want to say in the late 90s, it was like 96, they find Sue's skull which is really, they go to one of these like little ponds that's over by the Keddie cabins and they find her skull. A couple of years later, they find a hammer with her DNA on it. And they think based on the damage and trauma done to the skull that this guy basically hit her in the head with a hammer and it was a claw hammer and he dragged her with it into this pond. These are very disturbing real life murders. Film scholars will tell you that this is directly where Bertino's film, The Strangers, comes from. Some people will tell you there's a French film called Them. And, uh, okay, Them is overrated. Okay, can we say it? And I'm going to spoil Them. I'm sorry, okay? If you haven't seen Them, don't be mad. Don't at me. In that film, essentially what happens is you have a couple. They're being terrorized in a home. At the end, we find out it's children, but they do some crazy shit. Like they really bombard this house and it's scary as hell. Why that movie works is because everybody's just wearing black hoodies, things over. It's very, you know, it's not like high tech. They're not wearing crazy costumes or even like a Michael Myers mask. It's just ultimately kids in hoodies. Some people would say that that film influenced it, but there's a whole series of films in the early 2000s, some of them, the French film that ended up getting remade, I prefer the French version, it's just weirder, Martyrs, Vacancy, The Collector, even The Purge, The Purge is a home invasion movie, that first movie with Ethan Hawke, we've only got five bucks to make this movie, and You're Next, which is probably my favorite of the home invasion films that are made during this time period, and this is going from 04 this, you know, like 
Sometimes you have like torture porn, and torture porn was very like didn't last. Even slasher films, for argument's sake, they evolved, but the initial craze didn't last. This is a weird one, because you have home invasion films that start in the early 2000s, starting as, you know, like High Tension. High Tension is a different, it's one of my favorite. Definitely, it's probably an upcoming episode, or we're going to do something with High Tension. Uh, French film. Brilliant, brilliant stuff. But the, the meat of the sequence of that film is a home invasion. So this is very much in the collective consciousness. These are French films. These are Italian films. These are American films. Home invasion seems to be in the collective consciousness. This film craze lasts from 2003, probably kind of peaks out at 2013 uh, with Your Next. That's a lot of time. For a horror subgenre to have its heyday, that's a kind of a stretch. But uh, the home invasion genre works because we—it's very simple. We—it can be done cheaply. Centralized location. There's—I guess there's tropes. There's very much so tropes uh, within the home invasion genre. These people—they're in this house. They're being hunted. Who knows why? No one knows. Why are they doing this? We don't know. Who are these people? What's their motivation? What's the motivation for the strangers? What are they doing? What do they want? What is their end goal? Much so, like the original Halloween, we don't know what Michael Myers' motivation is. He just showed up. He's just a guy from a mental hospital. We don't know what he's doing. We're not sure. And that is what works quite simply folks before we introduce that laurie strode is michael meyer's sister when things are kept more ambiguous and in the dark they are far more frightening why is this happening you don't know why you don't get to know why this is happening it's happening and you're going to deal with it and you might die and that is very strong. I think what's happened and what's gone wrong with a lot of horror in the 20th century, I think this is film in general, things are over-explained. And the simplicity in 2008 of having this couple who is going through a shitty time be terrorized by three silent killers, it works. Uh, you know, it's style, it's story. Believe it or not, during the making of this movie, Liv Tyler got tonsillitis because she did so much screaming. Initially, there's the sequence where we have the masked man. Finally, we have the encounter. Liv Tyler did not want to see the characters in their masks because she wanted to kind of really be surprised. And that first sequence where she meets the masked man uh, that's where she got the tonsillitis. She kept screaming. She was freaking out. At a certain point, the second week of filming, after they started doing where Scott Speedman and Liv Tyler are squaring off against the killers, she basically got exhaustion. They had to pull her off the set. She went to the hospital. You know, they gave her an IV. She was severely dehydrated. Liv Tyler was in Armageddon in 1998. She did the Lord of the Rings trilogy. She also did the Hulk she did work, obviously, after Armageddon, but she hadn't worked in a little while because of the birth of her son. She took a little bit of a break. 
I think this movie was a lot on her. The masks that the strangers wear, which are brilliant, terrifying, vague, ambiguous, nebulous. The masks in the film were chosen by Brian Bertino, writer-director, who wanted them to appear as though the killers could have picked them up at any store. Successfully, this film was shot, I think, in like 26 days, 21 with the main cast. This is not an episode where I recount the plot, because there's not much to recount. It's, you know, like, it's a couple being terrorized in a house. And this is the part, well, yeah, we'll get to it. But this is the part that if you haven't seen the film, please stop the podcast, watch the film, come back, you'll appreciate it more. I appreciate you. So, spoiler talk. Obviously... At the end, when they're tied up, Liv Tyler, Scott Speedman, they've lost to the strangers. And they've got them tied up, much like the electrical cords that we saw that happened at the Kitty Cabin murders. Kitty Cabin? Kitty? Whatever. People got murdered. They were tied up with electrical cords. Very reminiscent of that. Again, Brian Bertino says that he didn't base it on that. It's neither here nor there. Liv Tyler says to the pinup girl, why are you doing this? The most terrifying line that I had heard in horror in decades because you were home there's your reason folks why are you doing this because you were home that's their answer that's her that's what she's saying this is random violence we don't have a beef with you we're not here to rob you we're just looking for somebody to fucking kill and that's it there's nothing more to it there's no convoluted plot that we're doing this for the money or some Scooby-Doo shit. This is just, we're murdering you because we're killers and we're horrible people. Even that, that's vague. We don't even know that. Maybe they were just, you know, they're on a high. I don't know. Two young boys. Liv Tyler is still alive. They see that the door is open. These two young boys are basically, uh, I don't know if they're Jehovah's Witnesses, but they're they're spreading the good word, some, some spiritual literature. They see that the door's open. And Liv Tyler's in there and she's screaming. And that's the end of the movie. Now, the strangers drive off. We never see their faces. We we kind of see we kind of see the one face, you know, it's the famous line in the movie, is Tamara home? Because again, they don't speak much. These these are like the only lines that the strangers speak in the movie. But we see them, and we don't see their faces left out of view. The little boys that find Liv Tyler trying to hand the strangers some spiritual literature. It's terrifying. Why kill those two people? Why not kill those young boys? Who knows? But I think, again, that's the strength of this film. The motivation is just not clear and apparent as you would get in any other film. Post-production, Kevin Gruyere was hired to edit the film. He's done a bunch of stuff. Fantastic guy. Uh, Came over from kind of that French new wave of horror that was so hot at the time. You know, like even if you don't... Look, Martyrs is a tough film to watch. That's kind of French new wave horror. It's a tough one. But I will tell you... Watch the French version. The American version is just not as good. 
I think there's something when you when it's the same director doing the movie twice and one is done for you know with almost a shoestring budget for European audience, it has a different sensibility. You can at me on that one. Several changes were made to the film during the post-production process, primarily regarding the conclusion of the film. In the screenplay, in the original footage shot, the three masked strangers reveal their faces on camera. We never see that, even in the director's cut. After the sequence in which Kristen and James are stabbed, the strangers wander around the house, cleaning up parts of the crime scene before dressing into Kirsten and James' clothing. Following that, test screenings, people decided that the producers, the strangers' faces should probably remain off screen. Also, there was an implied sense in this sequence at the end that the strangers were assuming their identity. And they kind of didn't like that. It kind of started to say, like, oh, it's kind of supernatural, doesn't work. So I think there was a conceit in that final scene to show their faces and that they were just human. But ultimately, the producers figured this would be scarier if we don't see their faces. And I'm not going to lie, it totally works. Because you see the profile, like you kind of see them, but you never see their faces. I think it works. Uh, A large part of this reason that it works is the score and soundtrack. Uh, There were 19 pieces of music composed by score producer Tom and Andy. This is a brilliant soundtrack. It was released by Lakeshore Records. Uh, It's a creepy score for what appears to be a movie that will make you jump, as well as make sure that the doors are locked tightly at night. This movie has a really good soundtrack, too. It's creepy. There's a lot of strange folk songs that were chosen for this film. Uh, it, It really is just kind of astounding to a certain degree. This movie comes out, and, uh... The crazy story about this was that this film was done in, like, late 2006. Oh, excuse me. No, they, they, they probably wrapped right around January, February in 2007. Film was supposed to come out um, in the fall. Supposed to come out fall of 2007. They thought, oh, this is going to be a good horror movie. Believe it or not, they believed in this movie and that it could play wide that this film could be like a sixth sense or something, you know, like horror fair that really gelled with people. So instead of getting the Halloween 2007 release, it got a early summer, got a May release in 2008. And that was kind of the smart decision. The opening weekend was $20 million. So they probably spent 10 million for the budget, which was, it was 9 million for the budget, but let's say 10 million for the budget. We like round numbers, 10 for the budget, 10 for the marketing. They made that all back in one weekend. This movie goes on to gross $82 million. Uh, Well, no, excuse me. $50 million stateside, $82 million worldwide. It's another banger on DVD. At this point, um, Blu-ray is still new. So people were going Blu-ray crazy. Like in that time period, definitely sold a bunch of them. This movie, um, it only has an hour and 26 minute runtime. I think that is incredibly effective. Two minutes longer. Again, two minutes longer if you have the director's cut. If, if you have it, watch it. Really, the difference with the director's cut uh, ultimately is like, it's a little bit bloodier. That's it. Just And, and, and again, people always like, I've been getting a lot of, a lot of you guys been hitting me up on uh, social media and you're like, 
we need to see a Wes Craven director's cut of Scream. You don't. You really don't. It's a little bit more bloodletting. Most of the stuff that he cut out that was a little more gruesome, it's gone. It's lost the time. Nobody saved that shit. Maybe someday it'll turn up in some, you know, release 20 years from now. But for the most part, it's kind of the same thing with this film. You know, you don't need to see the director's cut, but if you have the option, because it's become one of these things, like if you buy it digitally, you can buy it director's cut or not. Just get it. You like the gore. You know, if you're going to see it, get that little bit extra, you know. The tagline for this film was lock the door, pretend you're safe. That's a good tagline, right? Uh, there's really not much, you know. When it comes down to it, this film made money. And there is a sequel to this film, which maybe we'll cover. Maybe we'll, uh, we'll hit up Damien and we'll see uh, if he wants to come on. We could actually uh, have a conversation with, with someone. This is the crazy part, and I like the sequel has uh, one of my favorites, Christina Hendricks is in the sequel. Martin Henderson of Torque fame is in the sequel. He's definitely like Scott Speedman light. Uh, Strangers Pray at Night was made in 2018, a full decade after this film. And Brian Bertino, uh, he did Mockingbird. He recently just did, it's on Shudder right now, probably still will be. I think it's a Shudder exclusive. This is a good movie. The Dark and the Wicked. Brother and sister move into a house. Something's on the property. That's all I'm telling you. It's creepy as hell. Definitely watch it. Brian Bertino was kind of one of these guys. Like, I saw The Strangers, and I'm like, this mother, this guy, yo, he's going to, yo, he's going to be the next John Carpenter. He's going to be prolific because I was like, it's such a strong debut. You're like, ooh, damn, like, this is a different voice. This is scary. I like this. It just didn't happen. He wrote a bunch of other stuff. It just kind of went nowhere. And what was crazy was like, you saw later, because obviously the purge comes after this. They just, they kept going with those movies. They were like, boom, boom, boom. And they kind of wanted to do the same thing with the strangers. But for one reason or another, Bertino is like, I don't want to do this movie again. And I don't blame him. Like, I totally get that as a writer, as an auteur. But as a businessman, I say this. If there's money to be made, you must be making that money. Because if the people want more strangers, get more strangers. I think I enjoy the second movie, Strangers Pray at Night, on a different level. It's a different kind of a movie. It's more visceral. I think had this become a series, it would easily have lost its power. It's powerful because it's random. It's just one terrible night. If you keep doing this, like... like Let's say in this other world, because we even got a Purge TV show. If we got a Strangers TV show, and I don't know, like Kevin Bacon is hunting, because you have to have some kind of through line, like a narrative thread. And that would be the the, the, the fearless police officer that's played by Kevin Bacon. You know, this is, this is an, a show on FX, and he's pursuing them, and uh, he's working with the FBI. How are we going to get the Strangers? Strangers just on a rampage and they get so close every week to being caught. That's stupid. It's don't do it. Like, I know you want to do it. Don't do it. Luckily, they didn't. I think this was one of those issues where Bertino waited because he still he didn't make the other movie. He didn't direct or anything. He's a producer. But I think it was one of those deals where it was like 10 years to the day. Exactly. 
that we are going to get this new sequel. And I think it was one of those deals where the rights reversed to Brian Bertino. Have you seen The Strangers? Do you like The Strangers? I love it. I think it's a great movie. I have fun with that sequel. What are your thoughts? Do you, you know, I mean, like, that's kind of what I want to know. Um, is it one of your favorites? Do you like the home invasion genre? Does it upset you? I don't know. Some people don't like it. It freaks them out. That is for you to discuss. And uh, I hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Don't forget, you know, review the episodes. If you go on like iTunes, you can review them. Leave a review. Upvote it. Come on YouTube. Have you seen the YouTube? If you want to listen to some of this stuff, there's an episode you missed. Maybe you want to send it to a friend, to a parent. Go to the YouTube and say, hey, this, this is the show. The only way that I can grow, that we can grow, and continue to bring you free of charge entertainment that kicks ass and is informative and exciting and something for you to, you know, see a little happy place. You got to help me. You got to help spread the word of the show because the more I grow, the bigger, the better this is going to get. There's stuff I want to do. I want to host Twitch screenings. I want to watch movies with you guys. I want to have live events. You know, we're going to get to a point where we're going to be able to do screenings and I'm going to be able to see you at horror conventions. And I want to make that happen. But I can't do it without you. So I need your help. Get the word out about the offering. Because you know what? I'm the little guy. This is a call to action. With your help, we can help this show grow. We can continue to do new and exciting things and take it to the next level. And I don't know about you, but I'm ready to take this to the next level. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm Jerry Hara. This has been The Offering, where we're mostly horror, but always genre. I hope that you've had a good time, and I'm going to see you real soon, I promise. You've been listening to The Offering with Jerry Hara. I'm very sorry. Produced by Pete Bune. If you have a question or a story you want to share with me, we'd love to hear from you. You can email me at jerryhara at gmail.com or hit us up at Twitter at jerryhara or on Instagram at jerryhara. You get in the picture? Subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever fine podcasts are provided for you and your family. I want you to enjoy. Just join us next time for another offer. I'm Tom. My partner Mike and I have been friends and co-workers for a long time. And at work, we're known for our daily water cooler conversations about TV shows and movies we are currently watching. Whether we're arguing over which Marvel TV show is the best or agreeing about which Netflix original movie is the worst, the pop culture conversation is always popping on Two Brothers at a Water Cooler. You can listen to Two Brothers at a Water Cooler on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are available. Subscribe and share today. This has been a Sick Boy Wolfgang production. Thank you for listening.